You've hit play on the Screen Companion, a show about making your viewing time count. Well, this is another beautiful episode, a little different from some others because we are covering an entire franchise up to this point. I am talking about Mission Impossible 1 through 6 with my buddy Andrew. You had an interesting time watching them. I did. Get into a little bit of how quickly you jumped into all these movies. I was shocked. I actually caught stomach flu this week, so I watched all six movies within the last three days. And were you able to enjoy them even though you were having a problem? I think I had to take some ibuprofen when I was watching Mission Impossible 2, just for headache reasons. (laughs) I powered through them, and I just finished Fallout last night at like 1 in the morning. While you were going through these movies, at any point did you regret your choice to marathon them? No, I actually think it helps in a way because of continuity issues. I could remember things easier. I'm really happy to hear that. I'm going to be comparing Mission Impossible to the Bond series a lot. I feel like it does enhance the viewing of the Mission movies if you see them in a string, just because there is a lot more continuity than Bond. Yeah, because a lot of Bond movies, except for Daniel Craig, they're just adventure of the movie, you know? I want to give you some cruise facts before we go into all the Mission movies. Okay. I looked up some details, and it's amazing what you can find online that still exists digitally after all these years. I read a Vanity Fair article from June 96, about the same time as the first movie being released. And here's what Cruz had to say. He said, It's not really about control. It's another creative outlet. After all the pictures I've made, I've learned how to do things efficiently. When I first started as an actor, I always knew one day that I wanted to produce my own movies and direct. It just comes down to loving movies. On Mission Impossible, I was like a kid in a candy shop. I felt like I was 10 years old again, back in the theaters. Okay, what would I like to see? What would be the coolest thing? End quote. Another part of the article mentions that Cruz was determined that his movie not be viewed as an indulgent star turn. At the outset, he established the tone by deferring his whole salary. He will receive a percentage of the profits. Smart business move. (laughs) He's putting his money where his mouth is. He's seen as crazy because of the whole Scientology thing, and that one Oprah appearance did him no favors. Do you remember that one when he admitted to being in love with Katie Holmes? Oh, yeah. When he was jumping around on the couch. But it's so incredible how that dogged him for years. Yeah, it really did. Unfortunately, I was one of those people who was like, oh, he's so crazy. I hadn't seen a lot of movies with Tom Cruise in them at that point of that interview, right? The infamous interview. Except for maybe like Top Gun and I think some of the first Mission Impossible. Because the movie scared the crap out of me when I was a little kid. And then I started watching more of his movies later on, and I thought, you know, this guy's a damn good actor. He made a lot of interesting choices earlier in his career. He did. 
so many actors now, it seems like they do produce their own shows or movies. I don't want to say he pioneered this because I doubt he was the first, but he really just took the reins of his own career and said, I'm going to make my own movies. After Mission Impossible, his repertoire is very action heavy. He doesn't do a lot of dramatic turns, I feel like, after 96. He has Jerry Maguire, Magnolia, and Vanilla Sky, and Valkyrie. Those are like the four I can think of. He's a passionate guy in the industry, but ultimately, if he wanted to stay successful, he had to go where the action was, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. And just the changing tastes of movie audiences over the last 10, 20 years, he had to go action. He did it well. I think it's cool that he does his own stunts and he does all that stuff himself, so it adds a lot of credibility to it. He made himself, I think, a bona fide action star. It's like he looked at it and said, I want to be an action hero, and he made it happen. It worked. He's been in these movies for so long now. And the level of success he's attained through these movies, I'm shocked after this last watch through that they're not quite as cookie cutter as they should be feels like he still takes some chances i would agree i think one thing that i do really like about these movies you know because i know there's going to be a lot of bond comparisons there aren't really a lot of i feel true double crosses in bond movies but with mission impossible in fallout there was like a five ten minute sequence i counted like seven double crosses <laughs> the mask shenanigans you can't really be sure who's talking to who i think they keep things fresh with all these at times out of nowhere plot twists but they work within the world that they have presented so let us start this beautiful marathon we did obviously with the first mission impossible this movie Stuck in my mind as one of my favorite movie experiences as a child. My dad was taking me to so many movies, and this one I was only eight years old when I saw it opening weekend. In a nutshell, the plot is Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise. He's probably been only doing this a few years. He still has a very short military-style haircut, which I'd like to think is kind of a holdover from whatever branch of service they recruited him from. Mm -hmm. And he gets framed for killing his Mission Impossible team, and now he has to figure out who the real mole in the organization is, reveal them, and clear his name. What were some of your initial thoughts after you finished it? It's much more spy than action, especially when you get into the later movies. There's always going to be like the bigger kind of set pieces and stuff, but this one's in true franchise form, it's more narrowed down, it's a little bit tighter, it's not these huge, I don't want to say over-the-top action sequences, but, you know, when you take the action sequences in Fallout and compare them to the first movie, they're worlds apart. I just really like this movie because it's a great spy caper. It sets a high bar, I think, right out the gate. Well, consider this, as far as definitely not having as much action. I wouldn't call this an action movie. It's a thriller. There is not a single gunfight in this entire movie. I think a gun gets fired maybe twice, but there are no gunfights. Yeah, you are right. There's not a lot of gunplay. And then 
all the memorable set pieces, they're all memorable because they're all suspense heavy. Mm-hmm. I enjoy Brian De Palma, and he makes this so stylish with so many POV shots, the atmosphere, the fogginess, the mood. I believe this is the only, oh no, no, this and Fallout. They have hallucinations slash dream sequences that just amp up the paranoia and what's going on aspect of the story. I love everything about it. I like that you mentioned the paranoia of it. I felt like Ethan was way out of his depth in this one versus the other movies where it's largely Ethan's controlling the chaos somehow. I think one gripe I have about the franchise as a whole is at times Ethan is too much of one of those heroes that's like everything goes horribly wrong, but he's like, oh, don't worry. I knew it would happen like this. It's kind of like, no, you didn't. (laughs) Admit that you're bluffing. And I feel like it really isn't until Fallout, I'll say like Rogue Nation and Fallout, where you start getting that unsure Ethan Hunt again. With this one, you can tell he's flying by the seat of his pants too which is nice to see. I always like that in an action flick when the audience is kind of right there with the hero, where they have no idea what's going on and we're kind of learning everything as they do versus there's a sequence, a bunch of things happen, and the hero's like, yep, I knew it would happen like that. One of the most controversial aspects of this movie, which for me, I hadn't watched any of the TV show from the 60s and 70s or 60s and 80s, I feel fine spoiling this because it happens in the first act. So Ethan's impossible mission force team gets dispatched in the first 20 minutes. And there were a lot of longtime mission fans, even some of the actors from the show that they wanted to appear in this movie, refused because they didn't like the entire team dying. What did you think of that aspect of the story? It's a great inciting incident for the film. If their mission went perfectly fine, you know, you can continue the plot point of the knock list where the team is like doing their thing and just globe trotting and trying to track down the bad guys. But the team being wiped out ups the ante so much more because the knock list is out there and now Ethan's on the lam because. But this is one of those like twist and turn things, right? (laughs) When he's in that restaurant with all the fish that he obliterates. You start learning like, oh, wait a minute, this isn't good. The whole thing was just a ruse. They all got wiped out except for Ethan. Ethan looks for extraction from his organization. Wait a minute, they think he's a mole. And then it goes from there. Especially in this first movie, I feel like there are very few things you can kind of take for granted. One of them is being able to trust people. Because a lot of spy thrillers, they have that idea of trust nobody. But really, it's just one or two characters, and you can kind of see it coming. But with this movie in particular, you really can't trust anyone except for Tom Cruise. And it's such a great deconstruction of a character who, at the beginning, he's very cavalier, he's very confident. We see an operation that goes off without a hitch, and then he just gets torn apart, and we see him so vulnerable. He's covered in blood, he doesn't know who to trust. When I saw this as a boy, so Emilio Estevez plays the tech guy at the beginning of the movie on the team, and when he gets killed, 
I believe his is the first death in the chain of deaths that are to come. Yes. It's like, oh my god, Gordon Bombay, no! I was so shocked as a kid. I was like, oh my god, if they killed Emilio Estevez, what's going to happen? So we didn't watch this in theaters. We rented this from Blockbuster, and when he gets his face skewered, it was horrifically shocking to me as a kid that I got up and didn't watch the rest of the movie. I'm joking you not. Even as an adult, I didn't want to rewatch this movie because of that scene, because the terrible memories associated with it. When I finally watched it all the way through the first time, I thought, okay, that's pretty shocking, but it wasn't so bad. But then rewatching it this week, I was like, oh, dude, you see the spike go in his face. And <laughs> dude, De Palma, it's a PG-13. Yeah, he got away with it. He held on that shot just long enough. That's like classic 90s PG-13. They hold it until it's just like, okay, that's, that's going to be too much. Let's scare these kids a little bit. Make sure the parents know that you're not supposed to take them to these movies. The combination of the way he gets dispatched and the fact that it's Emilio Estevez, who I could definitely see another version of this movie where his character lives a lot longer and all the funny hijinks he could get into with Ethan Hunt. Mm-hmm. But in the larger context of the movie, once it's revealed who the mastermind is, it makes him even more cold-blooded to realize all the deaths he caused, especially Emilio's. I didn't recognize any of the actresses on the team. I couldn't tell you what else they were in. I've probably seen them in other movies in the 90s. If that movie was made now, they would put all these name-brand people in it, and I think that takes away from the authenticity when you recognize all these Hollywood stars. But I think one of the cool things with Emilio Estevez being in it and then John Voight and like other people who were in these movies in the 90s, it kind of like sets him up as like, okay, well, like here's the team. You know, you might lose one of them over the course of the movie, but they were all wiped out. That kind of adds to it in a way. When they take out recognizable stars so early on, no one is safe. I think this movie was positioned in such a way that, first off, if you're going to use that plot point of killing the entire team, you can't do it in the fourth or fifth movie with Simon Pegg, Vig Rames, these guys that have been well-established and loved. You can't kill everybody at that point. Yeah, true. So if you're going to use that tactic, do it in the first movie, get the most drama out of it that you can, and then on some level, I think it'll be in the audience's mind going forward of how dangerous it is to do what they do. And yeah, ultimately, Ethan Hunt's plans go off without a hitch for the most part in the sequels. But we're always thinking subconsciously, if you screw up, Ethan, it's the beginning of the first movie. Watching Fallout, I can say there were some moments of genuine concern for some of the characters. I'm thinking, wait a minute, like a lot of things are going wrong in this movie. I don't think they're safe. So we shall see in the last two who bites it. Oh my god, I'm looking forward to it so much. Those are the only movies I'm looking forward to. After seeing all these, I'm looking forward to them also. The same way that Bond people were wondering how Daniel Craig was going to dismount in No Time to Die. I really have that anticipation for Ethan Hunt because he's been with me since I was eight years old, Andrew. <laughs> 
It's a lot of expectations, though. One of the reasons Mission Impossible has affected me so much and stuck with me is that it's really the first franchise that was mine growing up. I remember seeing Goldeneye, but I knew that Bond had been around for a while. And Mission was really the first one where I was there at the beginning of it, and I've been with it since. And it's kind of my franchise because of that. Mm. Are there any favorite scenes or performances from this? I think the climax of this movie on the train is really, really well done. I like the sequence when Jean Reno thinks he has the knock list and Ethan starts doing his fresh digitation where he's like, oh, you mean this one? And he's like pulling it out of people's jackets and he's just like, you know, doing all that kind of wild stuff. As cliched as it is, the scene when they're breaking into Langley, when he's hanging from the wire and doing the computer, it's like an almost completely silent sequence. You hear your own heart beating because it's just a very well done, exciting time. It gives you enough time to breathe in between sequences. This is, I'd say, a pretty top tier spy thriller. It could be that audiences were just more considerate back in the 90s. I remember watching it. Everybody was silent. Everybody was dialed in. And when that perspiration hits his glove, everybody was keyed into that moment. Was there a sigh of relief in the theater? I don't remember that. I definitely had a sigh of relief. The way the suspense is done in that scene is pitch perfect. And you realize that all this stuff gets set up ahead of time such as the perspiration. You know, when they're describing the space, we see the technician in there, and he's got a cup of coffee or soda, and you see the perspiration drip off of it and hit the floor, and the alarms go crazy. So you know what's at stake when Ethan is sweating too much. Although I don't think it's the director's best movie, I will say this is one of his best, I think, that I've seen. With De Palma coming from a horror background really helps set up the suspense in these movies because he knows how to get that kind of tension. He did The Untouchables, so he also knows how to shoot like a good action sequence. Speaking about Jean Renault, what I love about his scenes, this is like the only movie that has two different Ethan Hunt teams and also the second one that Jean Renault's part of, he doesn't choose him to be part of the team. So there's a menace to him. There's this idea that, yeah, he's probably going to try to screw you over later in the movie, Ethan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he's using him. He has to use him. And that tension is really fun that we don't see everybody liking Hunt. He doesn't work great with everybody on his team. And that's nice to have that conflict. I do always like a good squad where one person's just kind of like, I don't like you. It does add something to it. It's not just some petty dislike. Once you see the whole movie, you understand exactly why he doesn't like Ethan. (laughs) 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 There's a plot reason for it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Let us get into a couple final details about this movie. One of the things I asked for you to do is come up with a Bond film equivalent as we go through these mission movies. So this first one, what do you think would be a relevant Bond movie to pair this with? I guess in terms of the espionage and spy elements, 
I would say The Living Daylights. Both movies, the big inciting incident is a team of agents being wiped out. In terms of double crosses and twists and turns, I think The Living Daylights does have some of the most of the Bond series. So I feel like it also kind of keeps you guessing with who's the good guy, who's the bad guy elements, just like with this first Mission Impossible. Well, since Daylights is my favorite Bond movie, I am required not to disagree with you on any of your points. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was thinking along the same lines, but I went with From Russia with Love because they're both very grounded movies compared to the rest of the series. That is true, yeah. This is definitely the most grounded by far of the Mission Impossible movies. We're going to rate each movie on a scale of 1 to 5, 3 being average positive. Let's run through my list here. I want to hear what score you're giving it. Let's start with story. I'd give it a good solid five. I did as well. I am shaking your hand through this mic, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Action. Four. See, that's pretty interesting because I gave this a one. (gasps) Just because it's a one out of five, I think people need to understand nowadays especially More action does not necessarily make a better movie. You're giving this a one on the action scale? Yeah, one out of five. Is that a quality rating or just the amount of it? I'm going to go with quality and amount. I'll agree with you that there's not a lot of action action, but to me, action and suspense kind of go hand in hand. So I think that's why I'm giving it a four. Okay, fair enough. Tom Cruise stunts. Um, You know, honestly, Tom Cruise stunts, this is going to get a solid two. I'm right there with you. I gave it a two as well. He uses a lot of green screen in this one. And in terms of stunts, it's a lot more tame than the later movies, too. I heard that one of the things in these last two movies, there's a train stunt. And I almost feel like he said, well, these are my last two movies. I regret doing the train scene at the end of the first movie using green screen. I want to do that for real now. (laughs) how about as far as the team what would you rate them well which team i mean the team in the beginning of the movie gets a solid one i mean like they they didn't last long i'd give it a three but all that credit goes to ving rames the other two members for story reasons drag it down to a three (laughs) yeah i gave it a three as well Lastly, the villain. What would you give the villain? I would give the villain a solid three. It was average positive in terms of he was an effective villain, but not a villain throughout the entire film. There's a reveal, and then you're like, ooh. You know what? I'll up it to a four, because this is the first one, and it's all on a much smaller scale but I think the effectiveness was there. He's perhaps the most realistic villain out of all the others, would you say? Yeah, for sure. His motivations, his scheme, feels pretty grounded. I gave him a two only because, and I feel like this is going to be a running theme for a lot of these movies, he is the perfect 
tool for the story to happen. But as opposed to Bond movies where you go, oh, I love the performance here. I loved how ruthless the character was there. Once you turn off Mission 1, there's really nothing memorable about this villain. Yeah, in terms of memorability, I'll give you that. I agree with you. The villains in this movie, they don't stay with you. Not to say that it wasn't well acted, but he plays the straight man to everybody else's more interesting shenanigans. He's the guy in the background pulling the strings type of villain. Any final thoughts on Mission 1? It's a great opening to a pretty good franchise. I'm going to have to agree with Brian De Palma, who was asked to direct the second one, even though I guess he did have some issues with Cruz during the making of the first movie. And I got to give him some respect. He said that he felt like it didn't need to be a franchise. It could just work as one movie and one and done. I'm obviously happy there's a franchise, but if this was just one movie, it would still be something people would remember. I think this would be one of the more memorable movies of the 90s for sure. And even if it was only one movie, it would still be a major high point of Cruz's career. Mm-hmm. Well, let us move on to MI2. Andrew, give us a little plot summary. This one's directed by John Woo, and this is the story of Ethan on his quest to find a biological weapon known as Chimera from a rogue IMF agent, and also a master thief that he recruited, played by Thandie Newton, who's also the bad guy's ex-girlfriend. Talking about what's unique about this in the larger franchise, very soap opera, highly stylized, I would say. Would you say this is the most stylish of them? 110%. Especially the last 30 minutes, it's probably the most John Woo movie you will ever see. And I guess they edited the movie without his involvement. They locked him out of it. So it's pretty interesting that so much of his style still managed to come through. I wonder why they locked him out of it. If they did it to un-John Wooify the movie, they horrifically failed. That makes me think, if this is less John Woo, what did Woo have planned initially? <laughs> I don't know. One thing I don't want this to sound like is that I'm bashing John Woo. His movies, The Killer and Hard Boiled, are top-tier gun ballet films. His early movies from China, absolutely great. He did that movie Face Off with John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. I love that. Loved it. Yeah, it's silly, but it's a fun movie. It knows what it is, and it leans hard into it. Yeah. I think MI2, it tries to be too serious. But yet, at the same time, it's an almost completely unrecognizable other than Tom Cruise as like a Mission Impossible movie, I think, except for certain events that are consistent through the franchise. It's such a daring choice for a second movie because it is so batshit crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And while I'm so glad they didn't continue in this vein for the other sequels, I am glad they went there 
and showed us what that type of mission movie would look like. Even though it was highly successful, I'm glad Cruz realized, hey, you know what? Let's dial this back a little bit. Maybe that's the furthest edge of what we should ever do. There's a lot of slow motion to the point where I wish they just didn't do the slow motion because we probably would have saved about 30 minutes of runtime. This one's still just uh, around two hours long, but it does feel longer than that at times, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. This felt like the longest movie. This felt longer than Fallout, which is 30 minutes longer. (laughs) You're so right. (laughs) And this came out after Face Off. What a missed opportunity if they brought John Woo and had Nicolas Cage be the bad guy. Oh, then it would have been a masterpiece. The story's really not terrible. It's at times pretty nonsensical. I really don't know how they drafted the script. It's just so different. I read that Oliver Stone was involved with this movie at one point. He only wrote an outline or a treatment, never a full script. But his idea that I guess they were going with for a little while before Wu got involved was that Ethan Hunt was going to end up fighting against a rogue supercomputer. (laughs) Oh my. That just doesn't sound like Oliver Stone to me. He is a bit of a maverick. Maybe he did it just so he could say he did it. That does sound like one of those things that an artist would do just to put a feather in their cap. As stylish as this movie is, I don't think any of these mission movies are awful, but I have to be in a very specific mood to want to watch the second movie. And during this marathon, it was probably the hardest movie for me to get some desire to want to watch this thing. I can see why. What were some of your favorite scenes or performances? I'm making it sound like this is a 0 out of 10 movie. It's really not that bad, it's just so... Specific? (laughs) It's specific, but it's also strangely unmemorable. I really liked the building heist. Like, the heist in this movie is really cool. When he goes to take Chimera, it does turn into this huge gun battle. And this is where the movie starts really John (laughs) Wooifying. Once the heist goes south, there's this gun battle that ensues. It's good because I like that John Woo style of, you know, just the leaps and the jumps and the bullets hitting the walls makes all this concrete just, like, fly out. Everything's exploding around people. As well as his infiltration into the bad guy's lair because the action's a little dialed down because he's trying to sneak in. Ethan's pulling off these advanced martial arts moves we have never seen him do before, and subsequently he has not done in the other movies. Like, he's doing flip kicks. There are so many flips in this movie. (laughs) Unnecessary flips. But one thing that's also now sticking into my head is the fight when he goes up against the big bad at the end of the movie and how tortured and long it is. The final fight sequence is too long. Oh, yeah. It wasn't even exciting to watch because I got tired of watching these two guys beat each other up in slow motion. Because so much of the rest of the movie is woo, by that point, your body's just numb. You can't take anymore. I hate it when I'm watching a movie and at the climax of the film, I'm thinking, when is this over? 
that is the exact opposite of what a good climax should do. There have been movies where it's just, it keeps going and going, and I'm like, yes, yes, I don't want this movie to end because the action is so cool or just everything's so exciting, but this one, just, just shoot the guy, dude. Just put him down. It's a bad sign, and it's how you know something is too long, especially an action sequence, where at some point during the action, you're thinking about other stuff. Yes. And during that really long sequence, I took a moment to write some notes. (laughs) Did you pause it? No, I let it run. Exactly. (laughs) And I don't think I'm going to watch it a second time so I can see if I missed anything the first. One of my favorite moments, and it gives me goosebumps every time I see it, is at the biotech lab, and they're having the shootout, and Naya... The love interest, she sticks herself with the virus, and Hunt realizes he's going to have to escape without her. That slow motion when he runs, and then he jumps out, and the camera just watches him fall a bunch of stories. Ah, it does get to me. I do like that. But the moment right before that, where he goes, just hold on, I'm not going to lose you. (laughs) Yeah. And he just yells it, and I can see John Woo behind the camera going, Yes, Tom, give me more of that, louder. (laughs) Make it drip. Make your performance drip with melodrama. Do it, Tom. (laughs) This movie definitely has its rough moments. And kind of along the lines of something like the original Star Trek movies, evens versus odds, I really wanted to pin down how you can tell when it's going to be a really good mission movie and when it's going to be so-so. The common denominator between the weakest mission movies is that they don't have a proper opening credit sequence. Yep. The shtick is we see a montage of things that are going to happen in the movie while the credits are playing, and it gets you jazzed. It's like a little mini trailer in the movie you're already watching. Mm -hmm. But this movie... It just does a couple stupid images, and then it's MI2. And then third movie, same thing as far as you just see some credits. There is no real montage, and that's how you know, kids, that there's going to be a problem with the mission movie. I'd say that's accurate. You are right. Because they don't respect the formula. Could you imagine if a Bond movie didn't have their own opening sequence? If some director just said, eh, we don't need to do it. People would revolt. They would know, oh, this guy doesn't take it seriously enough. You mean like the gun barrel logo? No, I mean the uh, credit sequence. Oh, yeah. That wouldn't be good. What's the closest Bond film equivalent to Mission Impossible 2? Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) Would probably be Die Another Day. I feel like Die Another Day would be if I wanted to insult this movie. But I want to celebrate it. (laughs) no. I'm going to say Tomorrow Never Dies. How dare you? The villains are over the top. The action is over the top. But they're both very enjoyable. They're just not grounded in reality at all. You said that specifically to bother me because you know how much (laughs) I like Tomorrow Never Dies. I think it's Die Another Day because the slow-mo plays a part in that too. And just the weird directing choices and camera trickery. And as far as feeling very different from the rest of the series. 
Yes. Feeling different, feeling kind of silly. Let us go through our ratings. What would you rate the story? Um, I'd give it about like a two. I gave it a three. The overall details of it are pretty nice. It's the execution, what we see on screen, that was lacking for me. But, you know, the, the whole virus aspect, it's the only one of the series that deals with that type of scenario. What would you give the action? The action, I'd give it about a three. John Woo knows how to direct action. I just think that he got away from himself in this movie. The crew stunts. Once again, I'd give it a two just because I can't really remember a lot of stunts in this one. I'd give it a three because he does a lot of that motorcycle riding and the car riding at the beginning and a lot of flipping and he's holding on to things. He's very spry in this one, very agile. The climbing at the very beginning. True, true. He's action man all the way through. What would you give the team? I'd give it like a two. I gave it a one. It's nice to see Ving Rhames again, but the third guy, the pilot, the Aussie, there's really nothing in his character. I didn't care for him. Thandie Newton's character, you know, she's okay, but... Talk about a movie with an unnecessary love interest. Hey, kind of like Halle Berry. Yes. See? (laughs) Isn't mine making more sense now? Well, in Tomorrow Never Dies, Terry Hatcher doesn't quite feel like an appropriate love interest either. Okay, that makes sense. How about the villain? Solid two, man. Like... (sighs) He wasn't bad, he was just really lame. I think the only reason I'm giving him a 2 is because he can go toe-to-toe with Ethan. I gave him a 3 because he had a lot of backstory, especially with the thief and their prior relationship. And then that weird kind of homoerotic subtext between him and his lead henchman. Yeah. This is a movie that... If you're at some trendy party where they're just playing things on screens that nobody's paying attention to, except to once in a while look up and go, oh, an explosion, this would be a good movie to put on for that. You are right. You are right. Hey, guys. Hopefully you're all enjoying this Mission Impossible talk. Because there are currently six movies in the franchise... I'm cutting up my discussion with Andrew into three parts. So keep an eye out for those episodes and make sure you check back in with us. Thanks for listening.